Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. And you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. This week, we discussed... Dramatic votes in Parliament. The spending review. And you ask us, what is going on with the timing of our now inevitable election? Well, at time of recording and time of listening for people who are behind the NSP wall... The government has gone down to one chastening defeat and all the indications are isn't by the time that NS podcast listeners who are not behind the paywall listen, the government will have gone down to a second. So at the time we're recording it, the government has been defeated on control of the legislative timetable. Obviously, everyone's underlying assumption is that the majority to take control of the legislative timetable will endure to seek an extension, which means that we are heading for an election at some point this autumn. Yes, yes. So the one defeat that we'll be talking about in this podcast um, is the one where 21 Conservative MPs rebelled and they have been kicked out of the party. So that's probably the most extraordinary thing about what happened that evening, because otherwise viewers who were putting themselves through watching that debate and the vote will have felt a sort of bit of a sense of deja vu because Boris Johnson found himself in the same position that Theresa May found herself in three times, failing spectacularly to... um, stave off a anti-no-deal Brexit rebellion. So the real difference there was that government took um, very harsh action against the MPs who rebelled. And some of them, you know, very significant personalities like Ken Clark and Nicholas Soames. The thing which I kind of hadn't really realised until I sort of sat down to write the column this week, yeah, at kind of 11 o'clock last night, is is just how many... It's just kind of weirdness. We're like, wow, I mean, eight of those people have, have held cabinet rank. Mm. I mean... <sighs> Yeah, I always feel I have to sugarcoat this whenever I say something like this about deselection. I kind of think it's fair enough for the leadership of a party, for the legitimate leadership of a party that has won a leadership election to to use its constitutional rights uh, as, as leader to do so. I, I think this is one aspect where Labour's constitution is markedly better and I think it is suboptimal to have a situation in which the effectively kind of have like, you know, a rule book built around the leader can do what they want is not great for accountability or backbench um, independence. But I kind of think that bit is sort of fair enough. It just, yeah, it's just somehow so, still so wild to see such kind of significant figures. And while you say it's fair enough, I do understand that argument, you know, that's how 
party management works. And if you're going to be an MP representing a certain party, you do have to follow the government line on important votes. I mean, otherwise, why would we have the whip system? But what I do think is a little bit of a mistake is that it sort of changes the feeling of being a Conservative MP or being an ex-Conservative MP for some of them now. Even if you voted with the government or you're voting with the government on these two votes, you're still watching some of your most esteemed or your most experienced colleagues being kicked out of the party. And that's changing the party that you thought you were joining or that you thought you were representing when you began your parliamentary career. That might not matter for some sort of newer Conservative MPs or those who want to rise the ranks and are seeing it as a career path. But it does matter in terms of you know, the culture of the club and the party and the and what you believe is right for the country represents. And that's just being morphed now. I think knowingly or unknowingly, and I think some of Boris Johnson's backers knew that this was the decision they'd made. Actually, the decision had been made for them with the referendum result, which is essentially like, it is very difficult to see where the enduring and reliable majorities can come via the David Cameron route, mm. because a non-trivial chunk of that electoral coalition is really angry about Brexit is an economic loser from Brexit and is and is therefore unlikely to vote for a party whose political project is Brexit. So you're going to need to get some votes from somewhere else. And this is, yeah, the kind of most sort of drastic and visible sign of the transformation that they've decided. But I think you're exactly right about that kind of feeling of culture. Now, the thing, I've, the thing I found really interesting is obviously one of the subplots of this parliament has been talking to defectors mm. and were the architects of would-be political parties. The fascinating thing is, of course, for a, I was about to say almost everyone, actually, everyone involved in any of these breakaways who I have spoken to and have known well has been relieved afterwards. Even if they are fully aware that, you know, that they're probably doomed or definitely doomed, they feel, a, you know, a, a warm glow at the knowledge that they kind of can go, that's a crazy idea, don't like this person. And I think one of the really striking differences between sort of the Conservative 21 and the um, mm. the 8 plus 2 field in Austin, I think I'm not forgetting someone else, and the and the 9 Labour MPs to make that journey, is that Labour MPs, you know, Corbyn's Secretary Labour MPs don't like what's happening to the party in the country, but they do like their parliamentary colleagues. Mm. Whereas the fascinating thing is, of course, is that with the 21 Tory MPs, you know, several of them basically said some variant on well, at least I'm never going to have to, you know, make polite small talk with, you know, Ian Duncan Smith, <laughs> you know, um, Esther McVeigh, Jacob, etc., etc. And I think that is a, you know, politics is intensely personal. And I think that fraying of kinship within the parliamentary party may well turn out to be a mistake. I also, I don't know what you think, but the fascinating thing about, yeah, what, what, the, what the kind of makeup of the 21, I think, indicates, seeing as we are essentially certainly going to have a, an election which the Conservative Party tries to win by being a party of Brexit, mm. is I think that these 21 expose the limitations of going, oh, well, become a Remain party, become a Brexit party. Like, what these people have in common is they oppose no deal and they all voted to Remain, although some of them would like the result to be overturned and some of them would like it to be enacted. But you have among that 21, even before you start factoring in people like Nick Bowles and, and Anna Subri, who, who'd made the journey already, mm. you have, you know... Philip Hammond is a traditional Thatcherite. He's socially conservative. He doesn't like all of this borrowing that's happening. <laughs> yeah. and he liked being in the single market and, and customs union, right? Anna Subri is a traditional Thatcherite, right? Like Nick Bowles is a bit of a Tory wet, you know, Like this, and it's on, you know, like that. That isn't the the group of twenty one is not a politically coherent entity. 
And that, I think, is essentially the problem with trying to become a party of Remain or a party of Leave, isn't they? You know, they're, they're, they're coalitions to do one thing or not to do one thing. But on day two, when you've done one thing or not done one thing, you've got this kind of weird electoral coalition which doesn't want anything. Yeah, I think that's really true. And you can't define, even if you pick one faction, even if you pick the ERG in the Conservative Party, the, the Brexiteer backbenchers, you can't define them as one type of Leave and you can't define sort of the labor some labor mp's who are remain sympathetic to remaining and who voted remain but 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 want to leave you can't define them as one type either some people want a second referendum some of them you know want to resurrect Theresa May's deal or to have some kind of deal in the future and not to have to have a vote on it so it's it, you very much can't categorize and then therefore write off swathes of each party because they're one type of thing and i think that's been the centre, the heart of the political crisis that we've seen playing out for the past few months. Sorry to change the subject, but one thing I really did want to ask you about is there's been a lot of talk about Dominic Cummings and his role behind all of this. You know, he's been called an entryist and people are saying he's not even a member of the party and he's, you know, getting rid of all of these old Tory MPs. I always think Westminster is so obsessed with advisors. I think it's the same with Seamus Milne as well and Linton Crosby before. You know, there's this obsession that there's some kind of shady character in the background who's making these leaders do these things. I always think that lets our leaders off the hook slightly. I remember when Zach Goldsmith was doing his mayoral campaign, everyone was like, well, this has Linton Crosby all over it. Even if it did, you know, he he was a liberal Tory putting his face to such a nasty campaign. So what do you think? I mean, do you think that concentrating so much on Dominic Cummings is letting Boris Johnson off the hook and his and his supporters yeah I mean I do I kind of think um the the cult of the advisor is is something which is really easy for journalists to fall into one because it it's a beat sweetener to go you know so and so open brackets call me yeah yeah it's it's a cute (laughs) and I think it's then reinforced by our other sources because Particularly with the Seamus Milne, Dominic Cummings thing, Bobby, right, where there's a there's a chunk of people in the Conservative and Labour parliamentary party who are unhappy with the direction of their parties and kind of want an excuse not to leave. Mm. And if the problem is an advisor, it's much easier, I think, to conceive of a situation where Seamus Milne stops working for Jeremy Corbyn, this side of an election, than it is to parking for a moment the imminence of this you know, <laughs> yeah yeah um, then it is to conceive general. of a situation in which jeremy corbyn ceases to be labor's leader this side of an election and perhaps not for a considerable time afterwards even in the event of another electoral defeat mm. and i think it becomes easier for people to go oh the problem is that wicked dominic cummings that wicked seamus mill because that avoids having to go wait am i actually unhappy with the decisions made by Boris Johnson, um, my Prime Minister, or Jeremy Corbyn, my Prime Minister-designate. And yet, it's, I mean, also, yeah, it's, it's nonsense, right? He's not, as we saw today, like, it's not like Boris Johnson like, is, you know, appearing on air, have, you know, trying to find ways to signal to the audience, help, he has my family. <laughs> you know, but Boris Johnson has chosen to, to hire and pay Dominic Cummings quite well. It's not like, you know, he, he is unaware of it. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So amidst all of the sort of kind of, well, slightly more unexpected developments, there's also been the spending, well, the semi-spending review, the year-long spending review, the kind of, I can't believe it's not a budget. Yeah. What are the kind of headlines out of it, such as they are? Actually, the headlines are more interesting than we thought they were going to be. There is spending for local authority, for the MOJ, and for social care. So those are the three sort of areas that aren't particularly sort of interesting in terms of, you know, trying to get some electoral meat, but they have actually put some money towards those areas. Every department will not face cuts next time round. So most of them will at least rise in line with inflation. So that's a big change. Sajid, the Chancellor, has said that um, it will be the fastest increase in day-to-day spending in 15 years, up by 13.8 billion. So that sounds very big, and it is very big in terms of sort of recent additional spending that departments have been given. But still, it's not going back to the amount of real-term spending on departments before austerity began, so before 2010. And, you know, there is one of the areas that's getting the most money is education, and that's actually having a budget on a three-year basis. The rest of it's one year, so it gives it a bit more stability. But already I've heard from a teacher who said, how on earth are we supposed to believe that this is going to be in place in 2022 to 23 when, you know, we're expecting an election around the corner. Brexit is going to put all of our economic forecasts and sort of whatever the government's priorities are completely out of whack. So how can they even trust that this is even going to be put in place? And something that does add to that uncertainty is they're using this fiscal headroom. I'm putting that in air quotes for, for listeners who obviously can't see me. And that's just sort of extra borrowing. They may not even have that that amount of extra borrowing because they're basing this spending review on the forecasts for the spring statement that was in March. And obviously the economy's changed since then. Growth has slowed down. The economy is shrinking. We could be heading towards a recession. So they might not even have that extra money to spend anyway. So it's all a bit speculative. It's not very sort of sober fiscal responsibility, Philip Hammond style. And they are going to have to change their fiscal rules as well. So these are are sort of the guidelines that the government sets for itself in terms of its spending. So only allowing borrowing to go to a certain percentage of GDP, making sure that debt's always falling, for example. That's not going to be possible if they're going to do this and they don't have the money to do it. So they're going to have to change those rules as well. I don't think that's really a big deal because every chancellor breaks their fiscal rules. So, But it is another example of how <laughs> of how this spending review isn't exactly the most set in stone, shall we say. Yeah, I think the, the kind of fascinating thing about, about it, right, is I think there are essentially two plausible arguments about why austerity was a politically well three plausible political arguments about why austerity was a majority winning proposition in 2015 and wasn't in 2017 Mm -hmm. basically i think of them as the big corbyn and little corbyn theories right so big corbyn is well look the big difference is is in 2015 the labor party's tone was we broadly accept the need for this Mm -hmm. and in 2017 labor party's 
tone was, we don't accept the need for this. Now, actually, when you look under the hood of those two manifestos, the difference in their spending commitments is not as broad as the the noises either yeah. of them made would suggest. But seeing as electoral offers are all about tone, I kind of think it's one of those things that... I think it's an important wonkish gotcha point to point out that the 2017 Labour manifesto made huge and heroic assumptions about wage growth and what you could do on the supply side, thinking it would be to counteract benefit cuts. Mm. However, when people kind of go like, oh, actually, it, it wasn't that big of a shift to the left, it's just like, but people people vote on tone. They vote on an overall sort of message, right? Yeah. So kind of big, big Corbyn is, look, the, the significant change was the, the Labour Party went, we don't like this, vote for us and we will stop it. Little Corbyn is kind of like, actually what happened was the Conservatives in 2010-2015 did all of the politically easy cuts and they gradually just, you know, from the tax credits vote onwards, just gradually just kept hitting up against, you know, like the fact that people love the idea of economic sacrifice provided someone else makes it. Hmm, I wonder if there might be some no-deal implications there. <laughs> the reason why I call that the Little Corbyn theory is obviously the answer to those things is both. And then the third thing, which is just like Brexit, which is a chunk of people who are into the idea of austerity, aren't into the idea of Brexit, won't vote for the Conservative Party. Yeah. And obviously the real answer is it will be some combination of Big Corbyn, Little Corbyn and Brexit. But I kind of think of them as Big Corbyn. Big Corbyn is you primarily think that what was it was about having an economic argument, which means that the Conservatives badly need to get back to what they had under Osborne, someone who makes an explicit economic argument, and that gives you someone like Liz Truss. Mm. And then the little Corbyn argument, which is essentially where you just go, we just need to just make the kind of howls of anguish go away. Let's have an expansive budget. Fiscal rules don't really matter. And then you end up with a chancellor like Sajid Javid. Mm. Yeah. So where would you say you came down on big Corbyn or little Corbyn? (laughs) It's really difficult to put it into one category because the rhetoric is so different from the actual meat that they've done so far. I mean, Sajid Javid has said this is the end of austerity again, which is what Theresa May and Philip Hammond were saying last time round. And in terms of tone for an election, I think that's, you know, for a Tory to say that is quite a strong message. And if voters aren't looking under the hood, like you like you described it, then they might think, oh, OK, and they'll see that there's going to be X amount of new police officers and they'll see that actually, you know, the children in in their local school have a little bit more funding per pupil, particularly in conservative areas, because that whole funding formula is sort of being redressed. So I do think in terms of tone, that's going to perhaps give them some sort of benefit come, come the election campaign. But in terms of, you know, actually, like we spoke about in a previous podcast, drawing attention to austerity and drawing attention to public spending... I think that's going to give sort of big Corbyn a chance to have his voice heard because that's people are going to see, well, actually, you've said you're going to spend more, but I don't see that change yet. Yeah, I think yeah. I think the thing is, I mean, I, I instinctively, I, I'm a sort of little Corbyn mm. thesis. Mm. Uh, I, I kind of think that political leadership can make politically important at the 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 margins most elections are quite close so the margins are quite important but overall right ultimately the biggest economic problem the conservatives has i just think it's quite hard to work out where the easy cuts Mm. come from however i would be concerned in their shoes and i think if if i were setting economic i would want to be more well hedged for both big and little corbyn yeah and as you say this the central problem is this to me at least it makes sense to have an expansionary spending review if you can avoid having an election However, I actually think as a pre-election decision, having an expansionary spending review feels like leading with the glass jaw because there won't be any more police. No. There won't be any fewer home people sleeping rough. 
schools will still be under pressure. The NHS, and I think one of the interesting things about this election is that the NHS tends to struggle in winter, particularly if it ends up being a bad winter. We haven't had an election in autumn for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, like th- There are a lot of things which are outside the government's control, which could become politically... And I kind of think, if I were them, I would probably have wanted to like do this kind of, here's what we will do when we pass our excellent Brexit deal. Yeah. And the only reason we can't pass our excellent Brexit deal is because of these pesky MPs. And... Yeah, we let us win so we can spend the Brexit dividend, because I feel that's probably a better dividing line than. Yeah, I just thought. Yeah, there was a bit in his statement where he said, you know, basically something like the age of restraint is over. You know, now we're entering like an era of spending. I just Mm. kind of thought, even now when Labour have a massive deficit on economic competence, they are seen more as the party of economic spending, and I'm just not convinced that happy days are here again is a good position for them to be in going to election yeah you're so right because that's will so jar with people's experience for at least you know let's say they turn on all the taps and this public spending actually happens that's not going to be felt for a really long time probably years and so people are going to see the contrast between what they're saying and what they're actually experiencing and that's good news for jeremy corbyn lots of people say well what's labor going to do you know the the conservatives have stolen a march on them in terms of public spending that's one of you know labor's best calling cards when they're going round knocking on doors is well actually we're going to give x million to schools unlike the tories who have cut them since 2010 i don't think that's a problem i actually think it's probably a boost like you say because the government's never going to out corbyn corbyn all they're doing is freeing up more room for the for john mcdonald to give even bigger spending promises because the government can never criticize john mcdonald for spending as much as they do (laughs) so it just means that he can just give bigger and better spending promises yeah i I just instinctively agree with that like i so i think it makes sense to neutralize a problem in advance of Mm. an election but it's not neutralized because the election is in a couple of weeks time at this point it's basically just like i know why don't we underline our problem (laughs) and i think that was the the kind of the the fascinating thing about pmqs today is one of the reasons why the prime minister ought to mostly be able to get a draw is because of the vital sixth answer right Mm-hmm. The leader of the opposition asks six questions, which means they have five. Well, they have four comebacks. Four? Am I right? Five comebacks. Five comebacks. Yeah, they can't come. They back can't on come back on the question. sixth question. Yeah. Oh, that was very simple, Max. <laughs> uh, yeah, they can't come back on the. Which means that that is the bit where you do the, you know, David Cameron going, "I'd rather be a son of Thatcher, a child of Thatcher, than a son of Brown," or you know, like or Tony Blair going, you know, weak, weak, weak. Or it's easy to to sort of at least get a point, as it were, if you are the Prime Minister, mm. because you have got the ability to go, huh, I see that your question reminds me of our dividing lines. <laughs> oh, didn't I answer it? Oh, shame you don't have any mechanism to come back at me. <laughs> and it wasn't just that Boris Johnson couldn't do that, right? I mean, it was, you know, what, what he delivered was barely speech. It wasn't even, if, if it's not, it, wouldn't, it didn't become more sensi- sensible when you, when you wrote it down. And you just think, oh, but that's because what are your dividing lines mm, yeah yeah other than yeah and obviously brexit is important right but i kind of think like what what if it turns out brexit isn't quite important enough to get all of the voters you need it's just like what what's your remaining dividing line is it would you rather have someone who's rubbish on islamophobia or rubbish on anti-semitism which i mean i can see how that's an electorally moving issue if you are uh, one of those groups in in particular right where it becomes existentially terrifying for you. However, as a dividing line 
for most people, it just becomes quite disgusting, I think. Yeah, I think it actually becomes quite disgusting for most people in those two groups. To, yeah. I, I always find it quite difficult. It's just like, oh, I really care about anti-Semitism. It's just like, you don't care at all. You don't, yeah, just, I'm sorry, like, the, the, the clue that you don't care is that it's only ever used as a like, rhetorical stick when it's like, oh, God, we don't have an answer on the deficit, or, oh, dear, someone's asked us a problem about the internal treatment of Muslims. It's just like, yeah, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the sign you care about something is it's not just there as a prop. But, you know, other, other than that, what are the dividing lines they want to draw other than Brexit, Brexit, Brexit? That's a really good and question. What about those Remainers in um, sort of Tory Labour marginals who, you know, don't like the idea of a no-deal Brexit, but they really don't like the idea of Jeremy Corbyn because he's a, you know, bloody irresponsible Marxist and he'll spend all that money. When they're looking at the Conservative Party saying they'll spend, 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 doesn't that give them another reason to say, well, yeah, I think they're going to be irresponsible, you know, in inverted commas anyway. So maybe it's neither here nor there for the economy. Which one I vote for? I'd rather not have Brexit. Yeah, or it just goes, oh, it's all terrible. I'll stay home. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm kind of, I'm sort of doing these pieces at the moment in my head, and hopefully eventually on the NS website about you know how can X party win, and trying to work out what I think the most plausible scenario for either side to get a majority and i think the thing which would keep me awake at night in terms of how do i think labor could the labor could do it without you know an economic shock or no deal brexit without a kind of external event Mm. it's kensington essentially right the labor vote did not go up that much in kensington particularly compared to most of the rest of london and most of the rest of the country it went up by a negligible amount they gained i think about two thousand votes but the crucial thing is that the conservative vote was way down and the lib dem vote was way up it's one of those things where, like, kind of, it's basically what I think of as the two-stage problem for the Conservatives. There's de-risking voting for Labour, quite a big ask. Mm. There's de-risking not voting, and there's de-risking voting for the Liberal Democrats. But because in almost every constituency there is, particularly every kind of traditional Labour Conservative marginal, mm. there are 15,000 to sort of 19,000 Labour votes. Yeah. Actually, if you de-risk non-voting and, la- and Liberal Democrat voting, you... you you get into trouble quite quickly. Yeah. And I just think, yeah, it kind of like, if you have like Labour irresponsibility versus Conservative irresponsibility, and I'm a Conservative-leaning Remainer who thinks they're both pro-Brexit parties, and the polls show that the Conservatives have a 10-point lead, I'm voting for Joe Swinson. Yeah, I look forward to reading that piece. <laughs> Now it's time for a section called You, you ask, ask Us. Sorry. Sorry, no, that was my fault. No, <laughs> um, I'm really sorry. No, you ask us. <laughs> <laughs> now it's time for a section called The Late Night Filing and Vote. It really, really started to cut it. So now it's time for a section called You Ask Us. And the question you are sort of asking us, it's a kind of, sort of smorgasbord question, is what is going on with the date of this election that everyone accepts and we're going to have, but there is a lot of haggling over the time. Yes, so we know that there's going to be an election. We know that the government would like it to be on the 17th of October now, is that right? The fifth, I thought the it was 15th. the 15th this morning, but I mean, who oh, knows? Right, okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to get some extra rest. Yeah. <laughs> and then Jeremy Corbyn threw a spanner in the works the evening of the vote where Boris Johnson lost to the rebels who wanted to take control of the order paper by saying, yeah, okay, fine, we'll have an election, but we want to pass this legislation delaying the Brexit date first. So that means delaying the date of the election. So what's going to happen? 
Well, so essentially, the kind of the at the time of we're recording the the joint Liberal Democrat as a whole and Labour leadership position is fine. Bring it on. Yeah. But we want this to have been passed into law first. The SNP's position is, yeah, once it's received royal assent, come on, you know, let's get let's get this party started. <laughs> um, and the position of Labour backbenchers is split, right? The people who would like a deal, who I'm sorry, I try to be kind. But <laughs> I, I mean, like, it's just it, it's deeply unnerving to me the number of people in Parliament who it turns out probably must spend, I mean, a non-trivial proportion of their salary buying bridges, like guys the you're not going to get to vote for a deal. Like, you, you had three goes, right? You had three options. You didn't take any of them. It's not coming back. It's just, I know that, I guess, you know, being a Labour MP, like, clinging to something which is actually dead is kind of a big <laughs> part of your brand now. But, but it's just unseemly. Like, yeah, like, it's just like, yeah, like, move on. But, yeah, so there's, there's people who kind of want to, want to vote for some kind of deal and would like, yeah, and kind of like, oh, you know, we need to give Boris till the 31st of October. And he's just like... Yeah, I mean, let's just you know, mark that for the contemptible special pleading that it is and move on. <laughs> There's people who are, who you know, feel that if you have an election, you need to maximise your chances of winning and then it hurts Boris Johnson more if he's been forced to extend. Yeah. I kind of think that's wrong, but I can see the merits of it. I, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't think so, but I can see why you would want to. Is this the stewing in his own juices kind yeah. of theory? Yeah. I kind of like... My assumption is I kind of feel like if I am Conservative Party, Brexit Party considerer, and the reason why we've extended is because Boris Johnson's been forced into it by Parliament, I feel like if, if my reasoning is I'm not going to vote for Boris Johnson because he quite he didn't quite literally decide to end democracy in this country by going, I'm not going to follow the law, I just feel that person's going to vote for Nigel Farage over Boris Johnson. That, that, that doesn't feel to me like that vote is winnable, whether or not the yeah. election is 14th October, 15th October, 31st October, you know, 8th January. Yeah, yeah. If Boris Johnson calls an election and you agree to having the election sort of on when he's called it, then it's even less easy for him to say, oh, look at Parliament thwarting me at every turn. They can say, well, you asked for one and we upheld it and... Yeah. This is democracy, yeah. So I think that's probably more palatable for voters. Yeah, I also kind of think, like, ultimately, like, because the SNP has decided it wants an election after royal assent, mm. and you can get an election by having a single one-line bill going, notwithstanding the fixed-term Parliament Act, the next election will be on X, and the Conservatives plus the SNP is a parliamentary majority. Yeah. The question stops being for Labour, ooh, when, when do we want it? And it's like, so is it more painful to be with the SNP voting for this election on the 14th, or more painful to be not with the SNP voting for it. I basically feel like no one is going to care about this idea of blocking an election if the election happens. Exactly, yeah. Whereas people do care about it if the election doesn't happen or is actually delayed. Yeah, yeah. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, my colleague Anusha Kellyan. It's recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is licensed under Creative Commons. Mm-hmm.